As we've already noted today, what a blessing it is to be able to come together on the first day of the week, that week set aside by the God of heaven that permits us the privilege of offering our worship to Him. And certainly as we're gathered together today, we're mindful of that great opportunity, and we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual here today. And we trust that our time together will not only be a blessing to us, but it'll also be a very, very great glorification to the God of heaven. A moment ago, one of the songs we sang was, There's Not a Friend. Now, as we often sing that, clearly that's a reference to Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, He's the title of our lesson today. The centerpiece of the New Testament. That word centerpiece, as you perhaps can appreciate, has to do with some things that we'll develop over the course of our lesson this morning. On this introductory slide, could I at least bring to your attention the Word of God, that wonderful Bible that you may well be holding in your lap at this moment. It consists of some 66 books, 39 of them in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. The entirety of our lessons today, both this morning and tonight, will focus on the centerpiece of that Bible. Today we'll take the New Testament part, at least in the morning. We'll do the Old Testament part tonight. But when you use the word centerpiece, you mean that which is of central importance, that which is the primary message, and it's Jesus. The entirety of all that this book conveys, the major issue connected with it is Christ. Today, I'd like for us to at least develop that using each one of the books of the New Testament. Today, we're going to look at all 27 New Testament books this morning. And you may wonder, as we seek to do that, how will we configure this lesson in a way to bring that point homeward? But I hope that I can do that in a successful way. Let me already say to you, as we do that, you may want to have your Bible ready. Because as we look at some of these passages and phrases, we will, of course, be looking time and again at the man we call Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What I shall propose to do for the next few moments is, for each one of those New Testament books, we will take from it a particular identifying characteristic of Jesus. He is going to be our focus. And I hope that we can conclude, as we do all of this, that He really is the centerpiece of every one of the New Testament books. He's the message God tried to reveal to us. He's the main idea behind all the 27 books. And so it begins like this in Matthew 16, 18. We'll begin in Matthew. Jesus is the builder of the church. Are we not told from the lips of the Lord Himself in that passage, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is the builder of the church, and He quickly told Peter and those apostles that He would reveal to them what they would preach and teach, revealing it to the human family. As such, the church is His kingdom, and He is the king over that kingdom, Matthew 21, verse 5. How about the book of Mark? What do we learn about the Master from that text? In Mark 7, 37, He's the Lord, the one who does everything well. I suppose many of us may have known people in life who did a lot of things well, but none of us have ever known anybody who does everything well. And yet Jesus not only did, 
but continues today to do all things well. And therefore, in Mark 10, verses 45 and following, He is the ministering servant who gave His life a ransom for many. He's the one that gave His life for you and me. He paid the price at Calvary that we could not have paid, and yet He did it as that servant who desired us to be ransomed from a devil's hell so that we could live with God forever. What about Luke? The third book of the New Testament, the book of Luke, we appreciate the presentation of Jesus in this way. He is the stronger man, Luke 11, verses 21 and following. In that passage, we have such an interesting development. There is a strong man called the devil. And yet Jesus said, One who is stronger than the strong man is here, and he will bind that strong man and spoil his goods. May we never forget, Jesus is the stronger man than the devil. He is more powerful. He's greater, and as we shall see later in 1 John 3, 8, He's the one who came to destroy the works of the devil that you and I might enjoy the pleasures and the bliss that he has to offer. What about John, fourth book of the New Testament? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 1, that Word we quickly learned was none other than Jesus. He's the Logos. He presents to us the Word of God. But the Lord Himself would quickly say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. And in John 20, verse 31, He Himself would say, I'm the Son of God. The Son of God. So far we've learned so much about who Jesus is. And yet, in some ways, we have so much more lovely things to consider. What about the book of Acts? In Acts 3.15, He is the Prince of Life who God sent forth, raising Him from the dead. And that's the very message that was proclaimed to that lame man in Acts chapter 3. And in the very next verse, it was Peter who by great power could say, Through this man, namely the Prince of Life, you, that lame man, can be healed and raised, to, and raised to walk. May I suggest that it's only through that Prince of Life that you and I too will ever have the greatness of enjoying that final resurrection. Because isn't it sad to consider rising only to die again? And yet that's what's going to happen to those not faithful, to those not members of the Lord's kingdom. What about the book of Romans? As we come to this book of Romans, we learn in Romans 5.8, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die, you see, for holy people. He didn't die for those that could claim to be deserving of it. He died for those that were the lowly, those that were sinners like you and me. He died for those, you see, that were in need of a Savior. Have you ever thought of it this way? The Lord didn't die for angels. Although there had been angels that had sinned, He didn't die for them. He loved human beings. He died for you and me, for those sinners who needed their sins forgiven. And no wonder that in the next chapter, we learn this appreciation in Romans 6 verse 3. It has to do with baptism. Paul asked that question, Don't you know 
that those of us who were baptized were baptized into his death. It is in that act of baptism we have the wonderful opportunity and the blessedness of connecting to his blood in his death and having our sins forgiven. All of that happens at baptism. What about the book of 1 Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, we learn that Jesus Himself is the power of God. Not only that, He's the wisdom of God. I suppose each of us like the thought of being wise. We like the consideration of making the best choices in light of the evidence that's available to us. And yet, Jesus is the wisdom. Nobody can claim to be wise who is not a Christian and a faithful one at that. And yet, in that way of life, that's not to say that we too won't make our mistakes, but we have connection to the wisdom of God, namely Jesus Christ. And He, by the way, as the power of God, is highlighted throughout that book of Romans and that book of 1 Corinthians in ways that remind us of what God can do through Him for us. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14? Here, what's Jesus? Paul would say to that Corinthian congregation, He is our triumph. He's our victory. That is to say, He's the one through whom we appreciate being winners. To be a winner, you see, is to turn out to be on the right side of that global victory between good and evil, between right and wrong, between heaven and hell, between God and Satan. It is through Christ that we enjoy that victory. We are always led in triumph in Christ. And that verse goes on to say that we are the wonderful manifested savor of His knowledge in every place. Therefore, aren't you and I thankful for what we have as victory in Jesus? At this point, why don't we pause and at least ask this question. Are there particulars in your life or in mine? Particular demons, if you please, or particular habits or otherwise that you appreciate are not wholesome and good and you'd like to overwhelm them and overcome them. Can't we pause at this point and say, it'll be Christ who could afford you and me the mindset, the energy, and the steadfastness to overcome whatever those may be. What about the book of Galatians? As you notice on that slide in Galatians 4, verse 4, Jesus is the Son that was sent. I say it that way because that's the way the Scriptures present it on that occasion. We have that Son born of a woman, born under the law. And why did He come? To redeem those that were under the law. Galatians 4, verse 5, Jesus is the one that the Father sent. One more time, isn't it a fascinating thing? He didn't send an angel. He didn't send one of the other emissaries of heaven. He sent the prized possession of His Son. And in so doing, the Son came at precisely the right time. And in so doing, look what else He did for us. Galatians 2.4 and Galatians 5.1. He brought us liberty. I would think above all places on earth, people in America, we have such an emphasis on liberty. Our Constitution mentions it. The Declaration of Independence mentions it. We like being free. And yet Jesus makes us free. Free from sin and the guilt that comes with it. 
free from the attitudes and the attributes that so often are hurtful and harmful. Jesus makes us free. He's the author of that liberty. What about Ephesians? Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Jesus on that occasion is highlighted like this. He is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. And in so doing, He, of course, as we readily see in chapter 5, verses 24 and following, that church is His bride. Oh, it's true He's the head, but maybe never forget that just as a loving husband does those things to protect, provide for, and make available for his wife that which is deserving and due. The Lord does that to His church, which is His bride. We are the bride of Christ. The Ephesian letter sweetly presents that truth to us in so many ways, doesn't it? For instance, in Ephesians 3.21, we notice that there the description is this. Jesus Himself is the one who brings us the nature of how we can glorify God through Him. What about Philippians? The fourth chapter book of Philippians 2 presents Jesus like this. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, He's the purpose of life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 2, verse 5, He's the pattern of your life and mine. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, Isn't He the prize of life? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. How? In Christ Jesus. Finally, chapter 4, verse 13. He's the power of life. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And as you and I reflect upon that, notice again that even in moments of struggle and moments of difficulty and oppression, that text reminds us the Lord will be the thoroughfare of power that permits us to overwhelm whatever those obstacles may be. The book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is our life. Would you think about that with me? You and I have no life apart from Him, because without Him we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1. He is our life. So each day as we seek to honor and adore Him, it is the case that He makes us complete, Colossians 2, verse 10. You, Paul wrote, are complete in Him. Whatever degree of maturity that you and I enjoy, whatever degree of entirety we have, it's only due to Him. And by the same token, any immaturity that's ours is due to our failure to follow Him. So far as we've looked at these letters, doesn't it quickly bring us to 1 Thessalonians? In that 1 Thessalonians epistle, we might ask, so what is Christ? Chapter 4, verses 13 and following. May I cast a spotlight on verse 16. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who is Christ? He is the one coming back. And as He comes back, He'll receive His own. You and I should look forward to that occurrence. We ought to so live in such a way that we, quite frankly, thrill at the thought of what that day will bring when He comes back in that way. We've often highlighted in that same verse, verse 16, 
it says the Lord Himself should have sinned. He's not going to send somebody else to do this for Him. He's going to come back. And when that trump sounds, and the archangel makes the presentation of that day, oh, what a wonderful occurrence it'll be for those who have died in the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians, who is He? Who is Jesus? Chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It's interesting, we just noted in 1 Thessalonians, He's coming back to receive His own, and what a joyous and sweet occasion that'll be for them. But in 2 Thessalonians, that's turned around. What about the other ones? The ones who are not ready for His coming. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9 say it like this, "...to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall descend from heaven." And as He does... He says He's coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. His coming will be a sweet and wonderful day for those prepared, but it will be a tragedy for those not, when they shall receive the wrath that shall never be quenched in light of being eternally separated from the God who loved them, and who sent His Son for them, but they refused. What about First, First Timothy? As we come to First Timothy, who is the Master? Who is Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 5, He is the one mediator between God and man. A mediator is a wonderful person in that it seeks to bring sides who have been apart back together. We understand what a mediator does, Parties that are at odds, the mediator seeks to make peace, to reconcile the two parties together. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. We as sinners were alienated from God, and as such, we were doomed. But Jesus came to mediate. He came to make available to us a means whereby the party could be brought back to God that our sins could be made forgiven, and that we could be redeemed. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, There is one mediator, there's only one, and that Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 1.15, came to save sinners. Paul said, Of whom I'm chief. Now you and I aren't absent from that list either. We're sinners too, and Christ Jesus came to save us. In 2 Timothy, who is he? 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. He's the one in whom the grace of God is found. And He's the one that came to bring immortality and life to light through the gospel. That's what He did. That's what He still does. He came to bring immortality. That is, never a death. He came to bring that to reality. Jesus did it. No wonder we read in that book then that as the book closes in chapter 4, Paul himself could say, I know whom I believed, and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And as he echoed that sentiment in chapter 1 verse 12, he himself could say that that crown of life awaited him. What about you and me? Does it wait for us? Jesus does all of this for us. Let's journey into the book of Titus. Jesus, who is He? 
as we give thought to the nature of His being in the book of Titus. What about chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? We find that He is the one who, through the Holy Spirit, renews us to life. Because after all, apart from the mercy of God, and apart from the offering through Christ, we, you see, were undone. But we have been renewed and regenerated through the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus. Shouldn't you and I be thankful for what the Master is doing and has done? And not only that, what He will do. We aren't nearly finished. And yet, as we have come to the book of Titus, what about the book of Philemon? A little one-chapter book, but yet in verse number 6, we are told that He is the source of all the good things we enjoy. There are many things in your life and mine on a daily basis. And yet, those good things are due to the beneficent hand of the one far greater than we. And they're made available to us through Jesus. That's really something to consider, isn't it? The next book we encounter is the book of Hebrews. And Jesus takes center stage here in a book unlike any other. So many things are told to us about Him. In some ways, it's challenging to select just a short list. I chose these. Chapter 3, verse 1 He is the apostle and high priest of our faith. We understand in the Old Testament that the high priest was a critical figure, the one able to enter the most holy place, the one who was able to carry out those necessary sacrifices. And in the pages of the New Testament, it is no different. Jesus did the sacrifice for us, Hebrews 10, verse 24. He is the one who thus entered into that holy place for us, obtaining eternal redemption for you and me. In chapter 12, verse number 2, it is also there said that Jesus is the one described like this, the author and finisher of our faith. The word author means the one who initially presents, the one who comes up with the originator, Finisher is the one who completes. He is everything connected to your faith and mine. There is no faith apart from Christ. There is no way to approach God without Him. Aren't we told in Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after Him. That Hebrew letter thus brings us to the book of James. Speaking of Jesus, who is He in the book of James? Chapter 2, verse 1. He is the Lord of glory. As James wrote to those of that day, pointing out to them the nature of the Lordship of His glory and the nature of what He makes possible for us, he begins that second chapter emphasizing that truth. Jesus is our Lord of glory. In the book of 1 Peter, one more time, the Lord in the midst of difficulties and sufferings. In chapter 2, verses 5 and following, He is the chief cornerstone. I know we've often thought about the nature of how you construct a building and how you lay the chief strong corner first so that both the walls and the framing are square and steady. Jesus is our chief cornerstone. There is no building satisfactory to God apart from Him. It provides the equality, the levelness, and the sturdiness of the structure. 
later in that same chapter, chapter 2, verses 21 and following, He is our example. He is the one, you see, who took our sins in His body on the tree. He bore them there. It is still a fascinating thought that when He went to the cross, on His shoulders, on His body, was every sin that every human being has ever committed. He carried them all. He could do it, and He did it. In Second Peter, we find the emphasis on this Jesus as in this way. He is the knowledge of God. I know we learned back in 1 Corinthians, He's the wisdom of God. Would you be impressed? He's now the knowledge of God. In 2 Peter 1, verse number 8, we encounter the knowledge through Christ Jesus. And it's highlighted again in chapter 3, verse 18, the consideration of that knowledge. What do you and I know? No person knows much of anything worthwhile except a knowledge of the truth of God. Because it's only in obedience to that truth that one can ever be made right with God. May we thank God for that kind of knowledge available through Christ. Following Second Peter, what about First John? Jesus Christ, who is He? What do we encounter in a book like this one? First, He is the Word of life. He left heaven. He took upon Himself the form of flesh. And in so doing, chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that there were those who touched Him. They handled the Word of life. May we never be led under the illusion that Jesus did not literally come in the flesh. He did. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be hurt. He knew what it was like to have people offend Him. And never once did He sin. In that way, He could appreciate every temptation that you and I ever face. And He overcame all of them. Therefore, in 1 John 5, verse 20, He is eternal life. And He is the Son of God. John makes those points very emphatically. What about Second John? Jesus Christ, who is He? He is the one who came in the flesh and presented to you and me and to all humanity the doctrine of God. The word doctrine means teaching. There is a teaching from heaven and Jesus is the one that presented it. We need to be aware of that doctrine. And thus the New Testament, through the presentation of the Master, makes this so powerful to us. In 3 John, Jesus Christ, who is He? Notice 3 John, verse 7. Not only the one who came in the flesh, but He's the one whose name, capital N-A-M-E, is the one through whom we serve, and it provides motivation for us to do good. I mentioned that N-A-M-E. Every one of us that are Christians wear His name. Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. As Christians, we wear His name every day. That is the name through which we're motivated to do what's good and right. The book of Jude, Jesus Christ, who is He? He's the one that's the preserver. Jude verse 1. 
when you and I think about preserving, we think of what sustains and maintains and holds, keeping it safe until the appointed time of use. Jesus is our preserver. Not only that, Jude verses 20 and 21, He's the one that bestows mercy. That is to say, the one who does not give us what we deserve, but makes available to us what we do not deserve. Jesus bestows mercy. Twenty-six books are now complete. Only one remains. The book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, what is He? Again, a number of selections might be made. I chose these. Brother Dennis read earlier in our lesson, in our time of service together, from Revelation, and in so doing, pointed out Revelation 22, 13. May I ask you to notice, more than once in the book, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. And through it all, He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8. I hope that through this discussion of these scriptures this morning, we've been led to appreciate the following as we summarize the lesson like this. Jesus is the focal point of the New Testament. Every book is based upon Him. Every book presents Him to us with a new attribute and a new consideration. And every book is needful for showing you and me how He is the centerpiece of all the New Testament. As we close the lesson this morning, what about that seven-seal book in Revelation 4? As that book is opened in that chapter and the next one, we remember that Jesus is the only one worthy to loose the seals. The only one. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing, Revelation 5.12. Today, as you and I examine ourselves... What a time for contemplation. Is your life in Christ? Is He everything to you and me? Have we constructed our life in such a way that we look forward to the life He offers hereafter? If not, we need to change today. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3 verse 12. In this assembly today, it could be that there's someone who would wish to turn your life over to Christ. Perhaps having never done that, you realize what now awaits you because of how each book highlights who Jesus is. It would be our joy to assist you today in a public response to that gospel invitation. Will you not believe in Jesus as a Son of God? Will you not repent of your sins, those things that have separated you from the God of heaven? Will you not confess His name as a Son of God? And will you not be baptized for the remission of your sins? Today, what a wonderful day it could be for you and for us as we celebrate with you. But may I say, if you have known that way of life and you have walked in connection to the Lord at one time in life, but as of today, that's no longer true. You have come to hold to ideas that He does not teach, or maybe you hold to thoughts and ways in life that He does not approve. Repent of those things, would you? Relinquish them over to Him. He will forgive them. As you do that today, you need to acknowledge those sins and confession and repentance. He will forgive them and we'd be delighted to pray for your continued strength and faithfulness. 
Today, Jesus is the centerpiece of the New Testament. May we adore Him, honor Him, serve Him, and live for Him. Because we look forward to one day living with Him forever. If we could be of any help today to anyone, we encourage you to let us know the way we can assist you while together we stand and while we sing.